if I was a farmer, the combine would be okay. What I'd really want is one of those four-wheel drive pivoting gigantic tractors. That would be fun to drive, don't you think? Don't you ever do, I, I tell Laura, I, say, I want one of those one day. I don't know why. I just want one. They're, they're awesome looking. But uh, Well, John Stott, this week we're uh, in our Christmas series that we're calling In Christ. And we're just looking at all the ways in which God blesses us in Christ and, uh, and who he really is and his identity and, and how God uh, shows himself to us through Christ. Uh, John Stott once said that God evangelizes us through the Bible. Think about when you have been evangelized or, or tried to share uh, the message of God with somebody, you're evangelizing them. Well, God speaks to us through his word. He evangelizes us. Uh, and if we're wanting to hear from God, we really need to open the word and listen to what he would say to us. And that's what we're going to be doing this morning and through this series. Uh, a lot of times people assume the Bible begins with a man named Abraham. You might remember Abraham had 12 sons, and each son formed into a tribe, and then you had the elect tribes of Israel, and Israel was a special nation. Uh, but in the Bible, election is always about service. Israel was elected to be a beacon of light, to be a, a beacon of truth, pointing all the other nations on earth to God. That's why they were elect. In many ways, uh, the story of Jonah that's in the Bible is a metaphor of Israel. When God sent Jonah to Nineveh, the leading city of Babylon, Jonah ran in the exact opposite direction, didn't want nothing to do with it. And when under compulsion, divine compulsion, Jonah eventually does go to Nineveh to preach. The city repents, but he's filled with anger and resentment. And he says to God, how dare you forgive such a wicked people, essentially. Uh, the modern church, sort of like Jonah, sort of like Israel, we are elect in Christ. But we can be as reluctant as Jonah, as reluctant as Israel to go and evangelize, to hold Christ out to the nations. Uh, Abraham, the, the, the people of Israel were reluctant. Uh, Jonah was reluctant. Uh, they didn't fulfill their purpose. Uh, the Bible doesn't start with Abraham. It starts with Adam. Abraham is the father of, all, of, of uh, the nation of Israel, but Adam is, is truly the father of all nations. And God didn't just have a dream for a single nation in the Old Testament, Israel. God had a dream for all nations, every tribe, tongue, and nation on earth. For Israel, eventually, yes. But God also had a plan for the Mesopotamians and the Egyptians and the real ancient cultures. He had a plan for the Egyptians under Pharaoh, for the Assyrians, the Babylonians, the Persians, the Greeks, the Romans, for every nation, past, present, and future. Nations in the west, the east, the northern hemisphere, the southern hemisphere. In fact, Deuteronomy 4.29, when I read this verse, it reminds me of how important not just Israel or Jonah, but our call as a church is. This promise isn't just for one nation, but for all nations. And it reads, you will search the Lord your God, and you will find him when you seek him with all of your heart and with all of your soul. Uh, our special assignment as God's people this Christmas is to shine like stars as we hold out the words of life, 
uh, we hold out the scriptures, we hold out the story that God can evangelize the nations. That is our call uh, this Christmas. Perhaps this season you're the one, though, that's seeking God. I want you to consider how God might be speaking to you, evangelizing you through his word. Uh, last Sunday, we laid down some very foundational things. I invite you to consider that God may be the only plausible explanation for your irreducible complexity, for the undeniable design of your life, for the mind-boggling improbability of your existence. I can think of no more plausible explanation than God, but you have to wrestle with that for yourself. I invite you to consider that not only were you created by God, but that you are specifically created for God. When you survey the earth and even the universe, the most tangible things that you encounter that resemble any sort of God is yourself and your fellow man. You've been endowed with God-like capabilities, capacities. You've been endowed with rationality, memory, language, sensory neurons, taste, touch, sight, hearing. You have consciousness, moral free agency. You have a soul and a spirit, not just a physical nature. You can effortlessly transcend time and space and matter to contemplate the divine. You can subdue the earth in a way no other thing can. You can exercise sovereignty, if you will, over the earth like nothing else. Uh, the Bible says that you are created with these capacities. You are created in the image of divinity, not to be God, but to love God and serve God and worship God and glorify God and fully relate to God. You are given these capacities not to have autonomy from God, but to enjoy life with God. And in this way, God isn't just a purpose of your life that you do over here on the side. But rather, God is the capital P purpose of your life, a relationship with him. You were fully designed to fully engage and worship and love and serve that God, not edge him out. I also ask you to consider how greatly you matter to God. You matter so greatly to God that this God who transcends time, space, and matter, this God willingly entered time. He willingly entered into the space and geography of history. He entered into even human form to seek and to save us and to be found by us, quite frankly. And not just us, but also the nations. Uh, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God and was God. He was with God in the beginning. All things were created through him, and apart from him, not one thing was created that's been created. In him was life, and that life was the light of men. The word became flesh and dwelt among us. We've observed the glory, the glory of the one and only Son who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. No one's ever seen God, but the one and only Son who is himself God and is at the Father's side has revealed God to us. God came to seek and to save, he also came to be found in this person of Christ. I want you to consider not just that God exists, not just that you were created for him, but that God is in pursuit of you, that you would find him. 
I want you to contemplate a further truth this morning. And what if I told you, you know, we think of Christmas. What if I told you that Christmas wasn't some new story or some later religious development uh, in salvation history of God? What if I told you that Christmas was the oldest and most ancient story of all, the first and the oldest story of Scripture? What if I told you that the first human being to ever hear about Christmas were the first human beings, Adam and Eve? What if the Christmas story doesn't begin as we suppose in Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John, or in the New Testament, or in the Gospels just a few thousand years ago, a later development? What if the Christmas story actually begins way back in Genesis? What if it's the oldest known story in the history of the earth and even before the earth? What if I told you that the Christmas, which, you know, we talk about Advent, the appearance of Christ, What if I told you that Christmas has been the driving narrative, the driving obsession, the driving hope, the the 24-7, 365 day a year preoccupation, not just of the father of one nation, Abraham, but also of all nations in Adam, that Christ is a Christ not for a nation but all nations, and Christmas has been the, the, the promise and the storyline from the very beginning. A lot of people will track a genealogy. They'll do uh, Ancestry.com because they don't want to pass over somebody that they might have been related to in their past. So you do a genealogy. You're looking backwards, right? But in the Bible, genealogies are kind of upside down. They were tracked because of somebody that the ancients didn't want to miss in the future, not in the past. They knew from the very beginning that God was promising to send forth a child, a Christ as we call. You know, Christ isn't Jesus' last name. It's not a curse word either. You know, Christ is a identity that God had identified to Adam and Eve that he was going to send a Christ child, a Messiah, a king-like child, a, a God and Savior through whom he would redeem the nations. And he didn't just tell Abraham, the father of a nation, that Israel. He told Adam and Eve, the parents of all nations, that a child was going to come forward. And through this child, not only would the head of Satan be crushed, but all nations redeemed, all people redeemed. The ancients yearned for the advent of Christ. Not just Israel, but the ancients, Adam and Eve, from the time of the, all the way forward. And their question is, when would God come to visit us in human form as God and Savior, Messiah, priest, and king? Would God keep this promise? And they track genealogies as a way of tracking that promise. So Jesus in the gospel, when he comes, he claims that even Abraham saw his day and rejoiced. Even Abraham, that this isn't a new story or development but it's a connection all the way back to the very, very beginning. Could that be true? Could that be possible? God evangelizes us through Scripture. That is his story. That is the story of Scripture. That is the message of Christmas, of Christ, that God promised a child, a Christ solution for our deepest needs. Now, let's talk about our deepest needs for a moment. 
the Bible graphically at times chronicles the fateful moment that Adam and every other descendant of Adam died. And you can think of death as ultimate, but you can also think of death as a process of dying. If you don't understand how spiritually dead you are in Adam, you'll never understand or appreciate how spiritually alive you can become in Christ. When Adam sinned, he didn't just turn away from God. He turned away from the source of life himself. When he turned away from God and tried to become a God, uh, there is no room for God to be God in his life. And, and he was operating from an ever-devolving equation at that point. Now, whether you're an atheist, and by the way, there are atheists always among us everywhere, even in the church. There are people that have attended church their whole life, and they've never believed God, uh, trusted God, felt God. And, and, and you may very well be sitting in a place and you're like, I'm an atheist. Or maybe you're agnostic and you're like, you know, I like the idea of all this, but I really can't know, so I just kind of stay on committed. You might be of some other religion or perspective entirely. Even if all of that is true or some of that is true, you are more attuned to the human dilemma than you may realize. In fact, uh, people of every persuasion and background uh, in their own way identify the same core human dilemma. And the human dilemma is fourfold. And it's, it's reflected on in Scripture, but not only Scripture. First of all, would you agree that when you look at the world, the universe, the natural order, would you agree that it appears to be abnormal? Like in many ways, the earth is too good to be true. It's very good. It's very hospitable to us. Uh, there's no plausible explanation just how this flourishing blue marble of life came to exist amid the darkness and the seeming infinity of all the surrounding galaxies, which are more vast than we ever imagined, right? Yet there's something amiss in this natural order. There are thorns, hardships, cruel diseases that even afflict children and innocents. There's disasters that wreak havoc every day in the news. There's another disaster on the horizon that we need to be aware of. The nations rage against other nations. Is this world abnormal because this world's an accident? Because this world was just accidentally burped into its flawed existence from an impersonal uh, universe? Is that why it's kind of abnormal but kind of good? Who knows? Is the world abnormal because there's no great God in the universe? or no good God in the universe who sustains and nurtures and guides it along. You know, a lot of times we worship technology, and technology is kind of like searching for pseudo-salvation in our technology. We hope that the technology will help us escape the pain of this abnormal world, will insulate us from some of the danger. We look to technology for salvation, but uh, we don't have a good explanation for it. But you would observe and you would agree that this world is good but abnormal. There's something amiss. But then secondly, would you also agree that we live in a cruel world? We look at our fellow man and marvel at what extraordinary capacity exists 
for the human race to build itself up in love. Think about it. When we are the world, we can do amazing and extraordinary things. Even uh, in, in Genesis, when man builds a tower to defy God, even God marvels and says, if of one man they can do this, they can accomplish anything. Think about it. We can overcome, we can tolerate probably most any calamity that this abnormal world might throw at us if we could all bear it together loving each other. But the calamity caused by the abnormality of the world is compounded by human cruelty. Not always alleviated, but often compounded. In the Bible, we call it sin or evil. In modern vernacular, we call it injustice. Around the world, they might call it bad karma. However you want to frame it, however you want to hashtag it. You know the latest hashtag? FTX or whatever, right? There's always some way we hashtag the cruelty that we see, the patterns of sin that we see in relationships. Hashtag it how you want. But a huge problem is that instead of living into love, we cruelly live for self, not other. We aren't good news to each other. We're bad news to each other. The greatest threat to human life and flourishing is another human being who might kill or steal or lie or exploit or rape or plunder or tread upon or starve or destroy in some way. You may not have a good explanation for it, but you'd agree that we live in a humanly cruel world, not just an abnormal world of calamity, good but calamitous world, that there's good but cruel humanity also all around us every moment of every day. And that's probably the more titanic problem of the two. But it doesn't end there. Because thirdly, the human dilemma is that we live personally shattered lives. So as many problems as we might point to in the world or in humanity at large, one of our biggest problems is ourselves. There seems to be something deeply broke within each of us. We can't master our own heart, our own mind, our own body, our own soul, much less that of other people. We try to control others, but we can't control ourselves. We're stricken deep within by shame, guilt, anxiety, pain. We're on whole. We're riddled with vice after vice. We have depressions. We live in defeat. Our own hearts, more than we want to lead on, contemplate evil. Our minds, more than we want to lead on, entertain lies and perversions. Our own health peaks, our strength peaks early on in life only to fade until it completely fails us. Our spirits yearn for joy and peace but never find rest. There's a crisis, not just in the world, not just in humanity, but within man himself. And it doesn't stop there. Because lastly, would you agree, do you not observe that spiritually we live in a dark and hopeless world. We are prisoners of time, prisoners of space, prisoners of matter. We are a mist that appears just briefly, only to disappear. We are, as the Bible says, without hope and without God in this darkened universe. We look deep into the stars for hope. We look deep into the deepest 
matter. We even take matter and collide it with other matter, hoping to discover some deeper mystery and secret that we can lay hold of and find hope within. We lay hold of hope after hope, only to be disappointed. We invent meaning for ourselves, purpose for ourselves. We imagine and often greatly exaggerate our own significance. But the reality that we must contend with is that from dust we came and to dust we return. Can we ever, like God, escape time's hourglass? Or are we forever consigned to be like the grains of sand flowing in that hourglass? Can the soul transcend space? Can the soul ascend to heaven if such a place even exists? Can the soul know God, see God, dwell with God, love and serve God? Here's the issue. How many of you have cell phones? You have a cell phone and that is an awesome tool to have. It's an awesome device and it can connect you in so many profound ways that you never could have imagined that you could connect. Since, But when that cell phone is disconnected from the internet, when it's not digitally, it's created to be digitally connected, but when it's not digitally connected, I mean, you can play with the calculator for a while or some app, but the greatest apps are in the way that they connect you to things beyond just that phone itself. That phone is only useful when it functions digitally connected to the internet uh, in the way that it was designed in the same way. We were designed not to be so much digitally connected, but spiritually connected to something far greater and beyond even our own selves, collectively and individually. We've been spiritually hardwired And it's not that we don't function when we're disconnected from the spiritual and from God himself. It's just that life isn't what it should be. And there's a part of us that has a spiritual yearning to be connected to the divine. And yet, what does that mean? What's that look like? There's a spiritual disconnection. We're without hope and without God spiritually. Let me summarize the human dilemma this way. And again, this is a scriptural perspective, but not exclusively in any way, shape, or form. This is the human dilemma. The world is dead, or at least slowly dying and passing away, dying a heat death, if you accept that. Love is dead in human cruelty, human cruelty compounding calamity after calamity. We all want to resurrect love and whatnot, right? Man himself is dead dying within, unable to cure his own heart and mind and soul. And it would seem that perhaps God himself is dead. We are so spiritually disconnected, it's as if God is dead, that God is some kind of a non-existent nonsense to be ignored. If God does perhaps exist, it would seem that, well, maybe he's not knowable or searchable or approachable, or if God does exist, maybe he's not as great or not as good, or neither. If you understand, how, uh, if you don't understand how spiritually dead you are in Adam, you'll never appreciate how spiritually alive you can become in Christ. You are in a dying universe amongst a humanity growing cold in love, dying within, without God, without hope, in a spiritually darkened world. If you don't get your mind around that, crisis, what will Christmas ever be? 
or Christ himself be to you. Every chapter of the Bible, from cover to cover, presents, I would say in the starkest and even the most candid of prose, sometimes with apocalyptic form, sometime in letter form, sometime in history form, uh, sometime in uh, all these different genres, the utter hopelessness of man adrift apart from God. So let me ask, is our world abnormal? Are we ravaged by human cruelty? Are we spiritually dead within, dying a kind of slow death? Is that all happening because God is in fact dead? Is that all happening because God is somehow deficient or incompetent or lesser than he needs to be? Is that because God is not so great nor so good nor whatever? Uh, Is this world the way it is because of who God is or isn't? Or is this world the way it is because of who man is or isn't? You see, God evangelizes us through Bible. And he gives us a very different understanding of this human dilemma than anyone or anything else. God declares that all of the heavens and the earth, indeed the cosmos itself, that humanity at large, that love itself, that man within himself, that man's relationship to God spiritually has been torn asunder by our moral rebellion. You are not a good person. I am not a good person. You have done great evil, and so have I, with titanic, seismic, indeed cosmic repercussions. And at the core of our crisis is that we are spiritually disconnected, not submissive to the God of the universe. We're trying to be God, not be one with that God. What if at the core of the human dilemma, this is something for you to contemplate this Christmas, not just that God exists, not just that you exist for him, not just that this God has pursued you through history, but this is also for you to consider. What if the human dilemma isn't what we imagine it to be? What if it's not just technical and, and whatnot? What if uh, the human dilemma isn't some imagined deficiency in God? What if it's a real deficiency in you and me, in our moral selves, our spiritual moral selves? What if moral rebellion is the most plausible explanation for why this world isn't as it ought to be and is indeed the way that it is? What if our moral rebellion doesn't just have spiritual implications, but deeply personal, societal, even cosmic repercussions? Instead of living for God, we've become our own gods. What if that's the chief problem? How might... God present a solution to that, a loving God, a great God. How might he address that situation? If God is great, how might a moral, righteous, and perfect God allow an immoral, unrighteous, evil people to even stand, much less live? If God is good, how can a loving, merciful, gracious God reconcile to himself, us to himself, not counting our sins against us. If you're God, how do you solve this moral, spiritual rebellion of a bunch of people trying to be their own gods when you want to be their God? How do you solve that? What if before the beginning of time, before the foundations of the world, the great and awesome God planned to send forth Christ to be our solution? 
So that as Adam and Eve are in dialogue with Satan and being led into evil in that very moment, but even before that moment, before the foundations of the earth, before God even moved by his spirit or moved by his word to create anything, what if before all that in Christ God planned a solution in the form of a savior? What if God planned not only to be just because he has to be true to his holy self, but what if God planned a way to be just but also to be the justifier, the redeemer of a morally, spiritually rebellious, sinful man? You know, countless generations have sought and do seek salvation. People look high and low. In America, we look to the left and to the right. You better believe that just like technology is kind of a pseudo-savior, that governance is kind of a pseudo-savior that we put all of our eggs in the basket of looking for hope, looking for salvation. We look everywhere for any kind of a solution to these dilemmas that I outlined. People have looked to the stars, to astrology. Yep, we're still doing it. Uh, people look deep within their own dead cells, hoping to find some kind of self-help. We look to one another because maybe there's a savior among us, a genius, a, a, a solution among us that we've missed. We romanticize through our poetry, through our movies, how true love might conquer cruelty. What is entertainment if not an effort to emotionally conjure up the passions of people to love one another and yet that kind of emotionally generated love just fizzles and disappoints time after time. We, we hope and, and romanticize that love might conquer cruelty, but it never does. We speculate about knowledge and wisdom and philosophy. We create idols and invent gods and, and look to science and invent religion and worship technology and all these things. We aren't the first to yearn for a dilemma to the human crisis. But what if all along God promised a solution from the very beginning, even before the beginning, God promised a solution not from within us, but from within himself. What if God promised to send forth the Christ? You know, God's first promise to Adam and Eve was that through their offspring, the rebellion would be crushed. Satan would be crushed. From the time of Adam and Eve, generation after generation passes. You know, first you have the, the first generation, Adam and Eve. Then you have Cain, and then there is no more Abel because, you know, he took care of his brother. And then you have Seth. Maybe Seth will be the salvation of the earth. And then from Seth you get to Noah, and God wipes out everything. And so the only thing left is Noah and his family. So maybe one of Noah's sons will be, you know, right? All these nations come from uh, Noah's sons. But it all escalates in Genesis 11 because all the nations become one against God. So even though God wipes out all the wickedness, the wickedness reconstitutes itself through Noah's sons. What you have in scripture is a human problem, a human dilemma compounding generation after generation. Man looking down all these dark valleys and, and streets looking for a solution, finding nothing apart from God. The yearning for salvation intensifying generation after generation. You get to Abraham, and God promises Abraham the same that he did Adam and Eve. Uh, the promise to the nations, he made the promise to 
the nation of Israel, that Christ would indeed come. So Abraham and Sarah, the Bible says, were as good as dead. They were realizing their age. They were realizing the, the limitations of their own time and space and matter. And they were as good as dead, but they were filled with faith and hope at the prospect that God was going to send forth a solution as one of their offspring, a child. And that promise was repeated from Abraham to Isaac to Jacob to Jacob's sons, most notably Jacob's son Joseph, who, by the way, went to Egypt and uh, was a blessing to the nations, a kind of foreshadowing of what God intended Israel to be, Jonah to be, Christ to be, us to be, a blessing to the nations. And, and so Joseph kind of foreshadows this idea that a child could be transformative even to the nations, not just a nation, Israel. And the Old Testament just carefully tracks generation after generation, not looking backwards, but looking forward, waiting for the solution to appear. In your Bible, the judges come and go, the great kings come and go, history, the chronicles come and history passes, uh, great prophets come and go, mighty nations rise and fall, Egypt, Assyria, Babylon, Persians, the Greeks, the Romans. But then in the fullness of time, the promised Christ appears. And in Christ, God demonstrates his perfect justice while also justifying the wicked. In Christ, God takes upon himself the just penalty of death that was due for our sin. He takes it on himself in the cross. He suffers and dies for the sins of the world. But then in that very same cross, God woos back our morally, spiritually disconnected, rebellious souls. In Christ we realize our true purpose, not to be gods, but to use our divine image, to use our divinely endowed capacities to exist for God, not for self or apart from God. We realize in Christ our true value, that God spared no cost even to himself in order to redeem us. In Christ, we realize our true significance, that we matter more than matter itself. In Christ, we rise from death to become fully alive to God in Christ Jesus. We get spiritually reconnected to the Father and we become blessed in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. We are a fully functioning app of apps, right? Spiritually rewired, spiritually not just wired, but spiritually reconnected. But it gets better. Not only does God reconcile us to himself, his holy self, through Christ, but even better, God sends his Holy Spirit to take up residence in our heart, in our mind, body, and soul, so that outwardly we may be wasting away, but inwardly, by God's Spirit, he is renewing us every day to be like God with ever-increasing glory. That brokenness within, by God's Spirit, there's substantial healing, a kind of down payment to the fullness of healing that we will enjoy in his presence and self forever. In Christ, another miracle happens. God has begun knitting us together to be a kind of new humanity, a kingdom of love. He's taking us and making us into his bride. He's making us into his own very body, a people for his own possession and glory of praise, a, a holy nation, a people and a church. And this church is to be a beacon of light 
the hope of humankind, that in a world filled with cruelty, here's a testimony, a light of love in the body of Christ, this new humanity, the church. In this Christ-inspired, love-inspired church, God is using us to fill this darkened universe with his loving presence so that there's hope in this world, even as we await the full redemption of God's people in his presence. And the scope of God's redemption in Christ, it isn't just that we get reconciled to God, that we get healed within, that love overcomes cruelty. The redemption of God culminates in the very redemption of creation itself. That the Bible says creation's groaning. Abnormal creation is groaning. Creation, the heavens, the earth, the stars, the seas, the land, everything, the animals, the earth itself needs redemption. And when God has his way, even the heaven and earth will be made new again. We are getting a down payment, a substantial taste of healing across the spectrum of our brokenness in Christ Jesus. But we await and anticipate that day the salvation appears uh, in Christ and all the heaven and earth will be made new. You know, it's always been about Christmas. The whole Bible, not just half of it or the last third of it, the whole Bible has always been about the advent of Christ, the appearing of Christ. Hope was never about anyone or anything else. It was never held out in anyone or anything else other than Christ himself. And it would seem to me that we'd do well to at least give God a hearing, to open the scriptures, let God evangelize us toward these truths. You don't have to leap. You can go on a journey and let God himself be found by you. If you would seek God with all your heart, not just you, but the nations, you will find him. Ask and it will be given. Knock and the door will be open. Seek and you will find. Could this Christmas be the moment that you lay hold of the spiritual reality God wired you to thrive within himself, a relationship with himself? Could this be the pivotal moment for your life for the script to be flipped and for you to taste salvation? Could this be the season that our world in some way, because our, of our faithfulness to show the light, that the world itself might also seek God and find him? Let's pray. Dear Father, we pray that we would hold firmly to the truth ourselves, that we would hear this gospel that we would bring our brokenness before you and seek healing by your son through your spirit as a community before a watching world. But Father, we pray not just that we would lay hold of these truths, but that we would proclaim these truths, that we wouldn't just make this season about a bunch of hollow Christmas folklore and cutesy things and, and, and an extension of our materialistic desires and ambition that we could make this season about spiritual reality in Christ, that in Christ alone, the mystery of ages, you've given us true everlasting hope. And, and may we share that with each other and our families and our world, holding it out firmly as much as holding it firmly for ourselves, holding it out to others with confidence. 
Lead us in this, Father, we pray in Jesus' name.